We started a new series last week in 1 Samuel, and Robbie did a great job of getting this series started. He looked at chapter 1 and the song or poem or prayer at the beginning of chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. Last week you met a number of folks that play an important part in this story. You met Eli, who was the chief priest of the time. You met Samuel, who was a miracle baby born to Elkanah and Hannah. It was a couple. Uh, he had another wife, which was problematic, but his, his favorite wife was Hannah, and she couldn't have children. But she had this child named Samuel, and she gave him to the Lord. She turned him over to the care of Eli, the chief priest, and he was growing up in the sanctuary there with Eli, the chief priest. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If anyone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? 
Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and go out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day." And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You maybe have had the same experience that I have, but when I invite people to church, I get different reactions. But one of the reactions, if they want to engage me about it and to speak to me about the reason they may or may not come to church, this or any other church, is a rehearsal of failures on the part of Christian leaders that they have known. And some of them have written it off completely on the basis of their experience of what they have seen or heard or read about uh, with Christian leaders. Now, some of these Christians are, uh, some of these criticisms are certainly legitimate. We have to recognize that. Uh, But there is a tendency to paint with a very broad brush. And that always happens. If a a member of a certain group does something that we don't like, it's easy to categorize the whole group that way, whether it be a racial group or an age group or a professional group or a faith group. It's easy to paint everything with the same brush and say, that's how all those people are. It's easy to dismiss biblical teaching on the basis of those who practice it least, those who practice it poorly. It's a better way to evaluate the uh, any belief system and the effects of any belief system is look for the best examples of it and see what their lives look like. Now, in this text, we have quite a contrast, don't we? We have the worst examples in leadership, and we have the rising best example in leadership as well. And that's how this text goes. It goes back and forth. It, it begins with Eli's sons, and then it has a section about Samuel. Then it goes back to Eli's sons. Then it goes back to Samuel again. Then it goes back to Eli as well. And so there's this back and forth, back and forth, and that's very much on purpose to, to contrast these two different examples of leadership. Now, we meet the the priests, uh, the priests, the sons of Levi, who was the chief priest, his, his sons were priests, and we meet them in verse 12 and 12 to 17, and then once again in 22 to 25. We'll look at those together so that we can get a picture of the character of these men. But it doesn't, it doesn't mince any words, does it? It begins by saying, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And it's an interesting expression. It's the sons of Eli were sons of worthlessness. 
They were sons of worthlessness or sons of wickedness. And in this sense, they contrasted with Hannah. Do you remember when Hannah went up to pray? She was praying and her mouth was moving, but she wasn't saying anything. And Eli mistook her for a daughter of worthlessness. And that's what she said. She said, I am not a daughter of worthlessness. And now, here's the contrast. These men are sons of worthlessness. And it says that they did not know the Lord. Now let that sink in. These were ministers of the Lord. These were priests of the Lord. These were the the functionaries of the, the public worship. These were the ones that were in charge of the sacrifices, and they did not know the Lord. That's how deep this tragedy is. Those who were ministers of the Lord did not know the Lord. And so what did they do? Well, everything flows from that. Their character and their behavior flow from the fact that they did not know the Lord. And so what we find them doing is abusing in a couple of areas their power. They abused the worshipers in order to get more food for themselves, and they also abused the women who were serving at the entrance to the the tabernacle. So there was a provision, an ample provision, by the way, for the, the, the descendants of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. There was an ample provision for their food. They ate of the sacrifices of the temple. And when a sacrifice was brought, uh, if you go back to look at, for example, Leviticus chapter 7, verses 31 and 32, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 6, there was provision for them. They got the breast portion of the meat, and they also got the right thigh. Those are good portions of meat. And so they got some good cuts of meat that was part of their, their work, and that was their payment. But what they did here, they had a custom of, in addition to that, their servant would come while the meat was boiling and stick in the three-pronged fork, and whatever else, in addition to their portion, was brought out, they took that as well. But not only that, not only that, but in verse 15, it got even worse. Before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say, give meat to the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat. He wants the raw meat. Now, uh, the, the worshiper would object, and rightly so in verse 16. The man would say to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. And they would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Now, why was this so serious? Everybody who has grilled meat knows that that which produces the smoke is what part of the meat? It's the fat. And so that was essential for the offerings, the burnt offerings, the production of smoke. If you look at Leviticus chapter 17, 6, it says that that smoke was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So you take away the fat, you have taken away the offering. And so the worshipers were rightly objecting and saying, no, we have to burn the fat because that's the essence of the offering. Then take whatever you want. So these these priests, these ministers were keeping the people from offering the sacrifices that they came to offer. And it says in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now in addition to that, we learned that they abused their power by sleeping with the women at the entrance to the sanctuary. There were women who served there. It says in verse 22, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And this was well known. This was scandalous. This was notorious. This was well known throughout Israel. Everybody knew about this. Verse 22, verse 23, 
Uh, he says to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. And then verse 24, it says, I hear the people of the Lord spreading about this, this bad report about you. And so what did Eli do? He's in charge. He's the chief priest. What does he do? He makes a mild, weak appeal to his sons to behave better. Verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And then he asks the question, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So this doesn't sound like a very harsh rebuke, does it? It's it's an appeal of an older man. Now these were These two sons were already adults, so they might have been out of his control in that sense. But he could have done one thing very clearly, couldn't he? He could have removed them from their work. He was the chief priest. He could have taken them out of their work, but he didn't do that. He gave a mild appeal to them that fell on deaf ears. Now, it's interesting that this second question is fascinating. In verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. So if it's a human against a human, God, or some translations have the judges can mediate. So there's a mediator if there are offenses between us. But then he says, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This is a fascinating question because that's exactly what the priests were supposed to be doing. So here's the chief priest casting some doubt on the effectiveness of his own position. He's saying, if you sin against the Lord, then who can intercede? There's a a missing piece there. If you sin against the Lord, who can intercede between you and the Lord? Keep that question in mind because it's a question that the, the Bible eventually answers in an amazing way. But here's the priest, the intercessor, kind of shrugging his shoulders and saying, who can really make intercession? And in this situation, what were the intercessors doing? Instead of making a bridge between the the worshipers and God, they were building a wall. They were keeping the worshipers from being able to approach God. So they were doing exactly the opposite. And he said, this is a very, very serious situation in which you are, my sons. And yet that's all he did. He didn't remove them. And then it says, terrifyingly, in verse 25, it says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, And then it says, for, or because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Very literally, it says, the Lord delighted to kill them. Now, this is a terrifying idea that ministers can go so far in taking advantage of their positions for the sake of comfort, for the sake of sex, for the sake of power, that their hearts become hardened beyond all A remedy. And that's the situation in which these boys or these young men were. And then we have the first contrast. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel. Now we cut back to Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Actually, I jumped over the first the first interspersed section about Samuel. That's in verses 18 to 21. So we meet Samuel, and it says in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. 
Now, we don't know exactly what an ephod was. It was some piece of clothing, but it was a clothing that was typical of the priests. And so it says ministering, and that verb is typical of the action of the priests, and ephod is typical of the clothing of the priests. So we have here little Samuel, who's still a boy, is being presented in a priestly sort of role as the attendant or the assistant to Eli, the chief priest, very much in contrast to his own sons. And then it describes... His mother, we were maybe kind of shocked last week when his mother turned him over as a young boy to the the sanctuary, but it says she didn't forget about him. She came every year. They would go every year to make their sacrifice, maybe getting abused like the other worshipers by by the sons of Eli, but she would make a, a little robe for him each year, and as he got bigger and bigger, she made a bigger and bigger robe for this little boy. And then we have... Once again, Eli blessing Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. Now, this is the second time. Do you remember when she identified herself to to him, not as a a daughter of worthlessness, but as a a woman who was heartbroken, wanted a son? He blessed her and said, may God give you your wish, your prayer, and God granted Samuel. And now he does it again and says, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. They would return to their home, and over the next years, what do we find? Verse 21, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And then it says, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Literally, it's the boy Samuel grew with the Lord. He grew with the Lord. The sons of Eli did not know the Lord. Samuel is growing with the Lord. So here's the contrast. Now, it says he grew in three ways. He grew in height, verse 26. He grew in favor with the Lord and in favor with the people, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And this is very much in contrast with the sons of Eli, right? So they were out of favor with the Lord. They were out of favor with the people. And it looks like they grew only horizontally because they ate so much, because they were taking advantage of the the offerings. And uh, it says that he grew in stature, he grew in favor with the Lord and also with man. So then, what do we have? Those are the the two different groups, the two different examples. Then we have, out of the blue, a man of God shows up to Levi, verse 27. A man of God here means a prophet. And the prophet showed up to Levi. We don't know who this prophet was, but he came with a word from the Lord. And then what did he do? He rehearsed God's grace. God's grace to Eli, God's grace to Eli's ancestors. And here, it's strongly... It doesn't say it explicitly, but strongly implies that Eli was descended from Aaron. That's, that's logical because those are the ones that should have been in, in the high priest's position. In verse 27, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father, Aaron, when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, burn incense, wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire. From the people of Israel. So there's the grace of God to his ancestor that's come down to him, this privilege that's come to him. And then there's the rebuke. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So what it looks like here is it looks like not only his sons were eating well, but it looks like the father was eating well from the corruption of the sons. 
And later on, we'll find out that for some reason or another, Eli was a very large man. He was, uh, it describes him as, as, as fat or obese. And so uh, it, it describes him as huge. How did he get so huge? Well, it looks like it was because he took advantage as well. So he was benefiting. And there's a strong rebuke there. And then there's the judgment. The judgment in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So this is the first part of the judgment. That promise to Aaron and to his house that's being revoked, at least in the case of Eli and his descendants. So it looks like this was not an unconditional promise. It was based on uh, the promise of God, but also that the, the priest would go on honoring the Lord. And now that they're dishonoring the Lord, at least Eli's part of that descendancy would be removed from the priesthood. And then the whole house of Eli is, is, is judged and says, you'll be cut off. Uh, there won't be any old men in your house. They're, they will die by the sword. And then only one, they'll all, they'll all be wiped out, and only one of you, whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And then also that his own two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would be assigned to him of this future massacre of his descendants, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the ones that were abusing the worshipers, they would, they would die on the same day. Verse 34, and then verse 36, any, that were, any stragglers from the house of Levi would, would be in poverty and they would be imploring for, for some sort of a work in the sanctuary in order to just have a little piece of bread. Now, this, uh, this indicates something that is true throughout the, both the Old and New Testaments. And that is that leaders among God's people are evaluated, at least in part, on the faith and the behavior of their children. We find that in, in the New Testament as well. We see that in the qualifications for elders and deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example, verse 4, speaking about someone who aspires to the office of overseer or bishop or elder, it says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And then verse 12, deacons, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And then once again in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might Put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then it goes on. So both in the Old and New Testaments, we have that, that qualification for leaders in the church, the, the faith and the character of their children. Now, this judgment, in this judgment, there is a promise that's that's in the right towards the end of it in verse 35 it says and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house 
and he shall go in and out before my anointed, my Messiah, forever. And so here we have this promise. And now we're set up um, for this faithful priest who would do the Lord's will, have his house firmly established, and minister before the Lord's anointed, the word is Messiah, forever. Now at this point, who's the candidate for the faithful priest? Samuel. It set us up for that. And we will find that Samuel was a faithful priest. However, as we keep reading the story, and I guess I'll, this is a spoiler alert, uh, we'll go to the actual fulfillment of this curse on Eli's family. Because as we keep reading the story, we find that all but one of the priestly descendants of, Le- uh, of Eli were killed. And that only one was left and that he was removed from the, the priesthood. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 18, it says this. It says, Then the king, this is King Saul, said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And then verse 20, But one of the sons, do you remember it said that one would escape? One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So there it's fulfilled exactly as he said. All of your descendants except for one will be wiped out. What happened to Abiathar? If we keep reading a couple of kings later, now we're in the reign of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28. And to Abiathar the priest, the king, this is King Solomon, said, Go to Anathoth to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Did you follow all that? So it was predicted and fulfilled completely, exactly, very, very, very precisely to the letter. And then if you look at verse 35 of 1 Kings 2, it says, the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So all of them wiped out, one left, he's kicked out of the priesthood, and now a faithful priest is put in place of him. So it looks like while Samuel was a a prototype of the faithful priest, it looks like Zadok is that faithful priest who would take the place of the line of Eli once the line of Eli was taken out. At the same time, Robbie indicated something important that we're going to see throughout 1 Samuel. And that is, we get to these promises, and these promises seem too big for everybody. Because it talks about forever and your house. And these these promises seem too grand for everybody. And so what we find throughout the Old Testament, and we'll see it very clearly throughout, throughout 1 Samuel, is that many aspects of this text are fulfilled in the one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ. Like Samuel, Jesus grew... In Luke 2.52, it says this, He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Does that sound familiar? Almost exactly what it said about Samuel. Jesus is the one who grew in now four different ways. 
like Zadok. He was the faithful priest. If you look at Hebrews, if you want to find a commentary on the priesthood, read Hebrews. We find there the explanation of what that was all about. If you look at Hebrews chapter 217, for example, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, sacrifice for the sins of the people. Like the kings, he was the anointed one. He was the Messiah king. But unlike Samuel, unlike Zadok, unlike all the Levitical priests, unlike all the Davidic kings, his priesthood and his kingship last forever. So now we have the mystery solved. What was that enigma that Eli brought up? Eli said, sons, if someone sins against the Lord, who can possibly intercede? And he was the one that should have been doing it, and he realized that he was falling short. His son should have been doing it, and and they fell woefully short. And here's the chief priest, the one who is supposed to be the one between humans and God, saying, where can we find an intercessor? Where can we find someone who is capable of standing between God and man, placing one hand on God's shoulder, if it were, if, as it were, and one hand on our shoulder and bringing us together? Who is capable to do that? And the answer we have in the New Testament is there's one, and there's only one. The one who is God, the one who is man, is the one and the only one who can stand before God and man and make intercession for us. That's what, that's what Hebrews says. If you look at Hebrews chapter, chapter 7, 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They couldn't be priests forever. Why? Because they all died off. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Here's the answer, O Eli. Eli throwing up his hands. Who? Who can intercede between humans and the Lord? And here's the answer. Jesus Christ, he lives That's why he lives. He lives to make intercession for us. And so what's the takeaway for us? The takeaway is this. We can be forgiven for our sins if we will trust in this high priest. We can be forgiven even for the sins that are, as Eli's son's sins were, very great in the sight of the Lord. We we need to understand that, that no sin is so small that it doesn't need forgiveness And no sin is so great that it cannot be forgiven. And so take heart. Take heart. There is one who can take away your sins before God if you will but trust in him. And the other thing is this. We who are ministers of the Lord in his church, but all Christians really, all Christians, we need to honor the Lord with our lives. That's that's another takeaway. If, If we have received that forgiveness... We haven't received that forgiveness to take advantage of that forgiveness and to to abuse God's grace, but rather that we might honor the Lord with our lives. Then, when people make negative judgments about Christianity, because they look around and they see some modern equivalents of the sons of Eli, may they also be able to look at us 
and find among us some modern equivalents of Samuel. So let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your faithfulness through all generations, that you never let your, left your people without an ability to come to you, a way to come to you, but in the Old Testament it wasn't clear, and even the chief priest wasn't so clear about it. But we thank you that now the way has been made clear for us to be able to come to you through Jesus Christ. And having come to you, having been forgiven, Lord, I pray that all of us would, would go to Jesus, go to you through Jesus and be forgiven. And having been forgiven, O oh God, may we honor you with our lives so that whatever might happen in other places in, in Christianity and in other churches, Lord, protect our church. Protect our church from scandal. Protect our church from dishonoring you. May, may people be able to look at us as we live out our faith, as we try to honor you with our lives, and may they see something of the glory of Jesus in us and be drawn to him. And we pray in his name. Amen.